Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello and welcome to New Scientist Weekly. I'm Penny Sarchet. And I'm Rowan Hooper. Welcome to the show. On the pod this week, we have reporters Adam Vaughan and Michael LePage. Hello, both. Hi. Hello. We also have Tom Cruise, and we're going to be discussing Top Gun Maverick a bit later. Yeah, interested to find out what your science angle is on that, Rowan. Yeah. <laughs> also this week, we're going to be checking in on the status of the mission to get people back to the moon, and we'll be talking about the domestication of one of the most important animals on the planet. Uh, as well as that, we'll be discussing the mystery of the hepatitis outbreak and trying to figure out what's behind it. And if you enjoy our podcast, please rate or review us on Apple Podcasts and elsewhere. Right, so we've got Tom Cruise to come and a free giveaway to tell you about, both a bit later in the show. But we're going to start with climate change. Hooray. Um, as we record this, the Bonn Climate Conference is taking place in Germany. Um, and that's basically a run up to COP27 taking place in Egypt later this year. Yeah, so it's the pre-summit, isn't it, where they try to Mm. pave the way to success. But that's what we want to talk about today, because the target of limiting warming to two degrees and trying to keep it at 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial average, that target was a kind of surprise to some people when it was agreed upon and decided at Paris in 2015. And ever since then, you know, right up until COP26 in Glasgow, we've heard that even though we've not been cutting emissions enough, that this figure of keeping warming at 1.5, it's still technically possible. Mm, uh, There was so much talk, wasn't there, at COP26 about keeping 1.5 alive, um, even though we haven't really been doing all that much to to do it. Um, And so for a long time, we've known that it will take very dramatic changes in our energy use and emissions cuts to, to keep us at that level. And just as time wears on, it's just becoming very hard to say that it's still possible. So the, the question we're asking this week is, Adam, is it time to admit that we're not going to do it? Um, well, I interviewed Tom Cruise to uh, ask... No, I'm sorry. I was, <laughs> uh, there's, there's a, there is actually, funny enough, a paper out just this week showing that if the entire world, in a sort of hypothetical case, stopped emitting carbon overnight, we would still have a 42% chance of warming the planet by more than 1.5 degrees so as you guys have said it's still physically technically possible to stay at 1.5 but the goal is definitely on life support jim ski at the uh, ipcc and imperial college he said that if we don't get more ambitious plans at cop 27 then we may have to admit 1.5 degrees is dead i mean strictly speaking he used the word gone but you get the point yeah and michael i remember uh, you were at paris in 2015 and uh didn't you say to Christiana Figueres that she was the climate boss of the UN at that time, that 1.5 was impossible and she ticked you off, didn't she? Uh, yeah, she wasn't <laughs> happy about that at all. But I, I, I mean, I think the key thing is, I think a lot of people are 
going, oh, this is just so bad, it's going to be a complete catastrophe. The important message is the more we do, the less warming there is, the better off we are. And, uh, you know, even if warming goes past 1.5, you know, that's that's bad, but civilization is going to survive. It's not the end of the world. So to get to 1.5, to, to get those sorts of emission cuts, we need a, a total revolution. And I can't remember who it was, but someone said um, that to get to 1.5 is not compatible with democracy. So the question is, should we now announce that 1.5 is dead? And, and, and Adam, like, you know, what do people think of it? What do scientists say about this? So everyone I spoke to was at pains to say that scientists are just laying out scenarios for what will happen to future temperature, future temperatures based on, you know, governments doing X, Y and Z. None of them are willing to say that 1.5 degrees is impossible mm. um, because they point to the fact that their models say that you could still do yeah. it if you did incredible things. But several of them would go as far as saying that they think it's very unlikely. And the main reason they give is that while there are bright signs in a few individual countries, there's basically no signal at a global level yet of emissions peaking, let alone falling in 43% by the end of the decade compared to 2019 levels, which is what we need for 1.5 degrees. But this is, the, this is the thing, isn't it? It's like, should scientists you know, go further than what is strictly possible or what is strictly said in the models and just be realistic? And do they have a role and even a duty to say, look, 1.5 is blown. We've got to get work harder. Let's get to it. I mean, scientists say, look, you know, we show all the scenarios and, you know, and, and I think it's right that scientists don't obviously stray into political realms. I guess what I do feel like they could maybe do a better job of is being more outspoken about the kind of when they say it's technically possible. I think sometimes I, I don't want to use this. Sometimes it can be a little bit blase about how it is, you know, like when at the recent yeah. IPCC report in April, you know, one of the key people there said, you know, that there's options, all sectors and we can do this. And I just think you need to make, they maybe need to be a bit more, honest isn't the right word, but they just need to be a bit more stark about, you know, the incredible amounts of technology deployment and behaviour change that that yeah, would unlike entail. Unlike anything we've ever seen in the history of civilization, <laughs> com- Completely without precedent. That's, that's yeah. the thing. And, you know, yes, that may still happen, but I don't think still saying it's technically possible is doing us many favours. So I guess there's a risk if we say that 1.5 isn't possible anymore, that that's seen as doomerism, like the fight is over, that we should give up, that it's a total disaster. But one of the things I'm interested in is, okay, so if if we have to let go of that target, what are we currently on track for? And has aiming for 1.5 degrees helped us bring that down from what it might otherwise have been? Yeah, so that's kind of a key question, I think, Penny. Um, and, uh, you know, it, I guess the answer to that depends on whose analysis you read. So mm. there was a paper in Nature in April that gave a best, best case of 1.9 degrees. That was like, the, so that does duck under the sort of lower target of the uh, Paris Agreement or the weaker target, I should say. And the IPCC recently said we're on track for 3.2 degrees, but mm. which is obviously a lot more. But that was based only on pledges up to the end of 2020. And just lastly, there's Climate Action Tracker, which is a very respected nonprofit that has been covering this for a long while. They they give 2.4 degrees based on government's current climate plans. So, so that's you know you can see a sort of rough spread of where of where we're at somewhere between 1.9 and 3.2. There, I guess the good news I take away from that is that before Paris, about five years before that, we were on track for about five degrees of warming. I think the key thing really is just that we have a more frank debate about how we're likely to miss 1.5, but that's not a reason for fatalism. You know, it's the opposite. 
it should be a catalyst. The other thing to say as well that even if the temperature goes above 1.5 degrees Celsius, which could, could happen for the first time quite soon, there's a potential for us to get it back down to that level again at some point in the future. So, you know, even once we go past it, it's not entirely sort of garden masters. There's that long-term goal of if we do get emissions under control and actually start to reduce the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, can we get back down to that that kind of level? Mm, and, and also just that difference between we were on track for five um, and so may, maybe now we're on track for 2.5, three. That difference is huge. It, it, we haven't solved the problem and it's not a perfect solution, but that still means a big difference for the planet, doesn't it? Yeah, massive. You know, there was that paper suggesting that we could temporarily hit 1.5 for, you know, a one year, for a single year. And um, one climate researcher I spoke to said that that might spur people to start considering or opening them up to really radical ideas like solar geoengineering. That, that would be interesting. I mean, I'd, I think I'd welcome research on solar geoengineering, which some people are proposing. I guess um, the sort of unilateral deployment by countries or individuals. I don't know if you've read Neil Stevenson's Termination Shock. I think that would uh, be a bit of a nightmare. But yeah, I think we definitely need more, more research on those ideas. Okay, we'll leave it there. Um, do read Adam's assessment of the 1.5 degree target in this week's magazine. We'll put a link to that really interesting report in our show notes. Now it's time for space news. So Rowan, what's the latest on humankind's return to the moon? Well, the latest is that NASA is about to launch its capstone spacecraft and this is going to pave the way for the lunar space station and that's going to help deliver people back to the moon by 2025 if it all stays on course. Right so it's a lunar orbiter. Yeah uh, capstone stands for uh, deep breath cis lunar autonomous positioning system technology operations and navigation equipment. (laughs) Experiment (laughs) I got it wrong. (laughs) Experiment Um, and basically this thing orbits the moon in a curved orbit taking it close to the surface and then far away, uh, which is the same orbit as this Lunar Gateway space station wants to do. So is this basically a a test run for the the real thing? Exactly. They want to try it out with this cheap spacecraft size of a fridge uh, before they put the space station up there. So this will all be part of the Artemis program, which aims to send women to the moon. Yeah, Artemis, the twin sister of Apollo. So she's goddess of the moon and of women and girls. So that works well. Yeah, so as you say, as, as part of the Artemis program, um, NASA is intending to put the first woman on the moon. So Capstone, the launch of Capstone has been COVID delayed, but it's slated to blast off between the 13th and 22nd of June. And it's been outsourced by NASA to a firm called Rocket Lab. So I notice in our notes here that you're calling this a sci-fi alert, which was an old segment of ours. Yeah. Uh, you're resurrecting it? Well, why not? Um, <laughs> for this, you know, there's been loads of lunar space stations in science fiction. Mm. But something that caught my eye was the first depiction of a space station in, in fiction. Anyone want to guess when it might be? 1890. Oh, nearly. 1869. Oh, not bad. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was a book called The Brick Moon by uh, an American writer called Edward Everett Hale. We're going to take a break now to tell you about our awesome free giveaway. Yeah, this is about free unlimited access to all our news and in-depth articles in print, in our app and on newscientist.com. As a listener to our podcast, you know what we cover. New Scientist provides the answers to the biggest questions surrounding the most fascinating topics. Find out for yourself and try four weeks for free. Head to newscientist.com slash four weeks free to find out more. That's the digit four 
So newscientist.com slash four weeks free. And we'll put a link in the show notes. We've also got a live event to tell you about. It's taking place on June the 15th in London. It's called Understanding the AI Revolution with Beth Singler and Shakir Mohammed. Visitors can join us in person at Conway Hall or online. You can find out more and book your ticket at newscientist.com slash AI event. Yeah, join us in person or online to hear about how artificial intelligence is emerging as one of the most important issues of our time. And actually, we're going to be talking about this in the next segment about Top Gun. Is AI a threat or an opportunity or somewhere between the two? What are the applications that will change our way of life? Hear about all of this and more with researchers Beth Singler and Shakir Mohammed. That's newscientist.com slash AI event. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Now it's time for our occasional movie review segment. And I don't know if you can hear that. That's the sound of my eyes rolling. <laughs> it's Top Gun Maverick. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, look, I'm going to be straight up and say, look, uh, okay, it's not a science film. It's not, not at all a science film, but it is going to be the biggest film of the summer. And there is a lot to discuss that's in our ballpark, you know, about the use of technology in warfare. You know, it turns out that the global military spend on AI is expected to be $30 billion by 2025, $30 billion dollars. So I had a chat with Arthur Holland Michel, who's a writer and researcher working on artificial intelligence and drones. Arthur, thanks for coming on the pod. This is 36 years since the first Top Gun. If we have Top Gun 3 in another 36 years, do you think there'll be human pilots then? In another 30 years, I think there probably will be some presence of humans in, in the airspace, but I think it would be very much reduced. I think it would be much further back from the kind of firing line situations that that the pilots in the movie get themselves into. But there's always going to be some role for human judgment, human intuition, you know, quick thinking, the ability to deal with unexpected circumstances. That all plays a big role in the movie. And it's always going to play a big role in, in human conflict. Yeah. And one of the big themes of it is, I guess, the spirit of, of human togetherness and how it can triumph over the odds. Um, so let's talk about that, because at the start of the movie, we've got Ed Harris. And in this movie, he plays an admiral with the nickname the Drone Ranger. And uh, he wants to replace human pilots with drones. And he tells Maverick, your days are numbered. The Navy will have no use for you anymore. What's your take on that? People have been saying that for uh, a long time. But, you know, 
human pilots are still very, very relevant today, as, as relevant in a way as they were 10 or even 15 years ago. And I, I don't see that changing in the very immediate future, mm. not solely because of technological reasons, but partly because of cultural reasons as well. Yeah. So in the, in the film, the, the, this Top Gun team have to fly along a canyon and bomb this tiny exhaust vent, uh, which is basically the same as in the original Star Wars when they have to blow up the Death Star, isn't it? And they fly in, the, in these single-seater F-18 fighters, and the enemy plane is, uh, we think it's probably an Su-57, which is a Russian stealth fighter. And uh, we're told a lot in the film that the F-18 has no chance at all against this fifth-generation fighter, I mean, is that fair? And there's this crazy scene where one of these stealth fighters does this kind of handbrake turn in the air. And I looked that up mm. and it was called a Herbst maneuver or a J turn. Um, yeah. So, you know, how, you know. Which is something that the, the those airplanes appear to be capable of doing. But, you know, the, the movie does make it very clear that what ends up triumphing over these, you know, fifth generation fighters is human skill. You know, yeah. the, the extraordinary human skill of uh, Maverick and, and of the other pilots, you know, that, that goes very much to the, this overarching sort of tension about whether drones will replace humans or whether technology more broadly will replace humans. I, I feel like it's almost like a little bit of a jab at, at, at that notion. And what about drones and increased uh... AI surveillance generally, like how is that changing the face of, of combat? It's having significant effects, but in fairly niche roles. AI has proven itself to be fairly effective for things like rudimentary target recognition or navigation, even some level of guiding a drone or a missile sort of to a, a target. But it still hits these, these very concrete limits. As soon as you start talking about having to differentiate between different types of targets, anytime that it has to make, quote unquote, decisions that, um, that wrangle ambiguity or gaps in information, the, the, the systems really continue to struggle and, and there, are, there are major technological hurdles. What about that line where effectively they say that drones don't, Maverick, you know, Maverick is, is the one who disobeys orders, but drones don't disobey orders. Yeah, there's this, um, there's this long running mythology in the discourse on drones that you could code a drone to do exactly what you want it to do. And that that would be a, a tremendous benefit because the drone's not going to uh, go and, say, kill civilians or disobey rules of engagement. But what we've seen, in, in especially in, in recent years, is that actually coding those rules into a drone is, is no easy feat, partly because... In implementing these these rules or, or legal judgment, humans have this amazing capacity to deal with conflicting information and ambiguity. And we don't just rely on mathematics and, and numbers to, to make these decisions. So in a weird kind of way, I would, I would posit that perhaps drones are 
in some cases just as likely to disobey orders <laughs> as um as our friend Maverick. All right, maybe that will be top Top Gun Three. Will be you know a ninety year old Tom Cruise and and his Maverick drone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then it'll be him trying to to get the drone to do what he wants it to do, and it's the drone that's being the actual Maverick. Let's pitch and, uh, this story, man. Let's yeah, do it. Yeah, <laughs> you know, actually, it's interesting that the director of the first Top Gun, Tony Scott, in twenty ten said that he actually wanted to make the Top Gun sequel about drone pilots. Wow, because he met an Air Force drone pilot, and was so taken aback by this individual's story that he he was convinced that the, the sequel had to be about drone pilots, not about fighter pilots, but people who were on the ground doing these long shifts flying mm. remotely operated vehicles. Tony Scott sadly passed away and the movie went in another direction, but that is certainly a movie I would uh, also pay to see. I would too. That was Arthur Holland and Michelle, who, among other things, is a fellow at the Carnegie Council for Ethics in International Affairs. And we'll have a version of that interview on YouTube and we'll post a link in the show notes. Next up, we've got uh, another semi-regular segment, Life Form of the Week. And that's when we celebrate the, just the most amazing and intriguing living organisms on the planet. Um, so, Penny, what just blow me away now with what fascinating creature you've got. I've got chickens! Oh, <laughs> uh, you couldn't see that coming at all. <laughs> so, stay with me. It is a really fascinating story. There's a pair of new studies which suggest chickens were domesticated much more recently than we thought. And interestingly, that we don't necessarily know why they were domesticated either. Oh, so how recently are we talking? It looks like the earliest domestic chickens may not have lived any earlier than 3,670 years ago, which obviously isn't that recent. But it had been thought that chickens were domesticated more like 6,000 or even 10,000 years ago. So that's a really big difference. That is a big difference. It's also quite precise, isn't it? 3,670 <laughs> years ago. But OK, so but we know chickens were domesticated from um, red jungle fowl in Southeast Asia. Why the mix up? Why this, you know, thousands of years going wrong? Yeah, it's it's really interesting, actually. Um, there's various ways that researchers may get mixed up, basically, when at archaeological sites. For example, it's possible that other kinds of bird bones, um, for example, pheasants might mistakenly have been identified as ancient chicken bones. And another one is that um, if you have a burrowing animal in an archaeological site, they can sort of move small bones around and chicken bones might sometimes get sort of pushed into <laughs> older layers of archaeological sites. Oh, my God, what a nightmare they've had <laughs> this out. Yeah, I don't think I could be an archaeologist, I'll tell you, <laughs> too hard. But one of my favourite details in the story uh, that Colin Barris wrote for us is that one chicken bone found at a site in Bulgaria was thought to be 7,500 years old, but radiocarbon dating suggests that it came from a chicken that was alive sometime between 1959 and 1985. <laughs> <laughs> from, a, from a KFC bucket, probably. <laughs> oh, possibly. <laughs> um, okay, so you can see how it's easy to get mixed up. But what was it you said about not knowing why people domesticated them? Because wasn't isn't it obviously for meat? So th apparently there isn't much early evidence in chicken bones that they were being butchered for meat. Um, mm. In fact, when they were first spread outside of their natural geographic range, early chickens seem to have often been quite carefully buried. <laughs> well, like pets. Yeah, like maybe. Uh, one right. theory is that these uh, would have been at the time quite exotic creatures. So they were given some kind of special treatment. 
and you know like like we always get in these kinds of studies people are suggesting maybe we assign them spiritual significance um like an association with some deity or similar but they may have had other uses too eggs obviously perhaps even sounding the alarm like a bird equivalent of like a a guard dog which we know (laughs) um geese have sometimes been used for right okay well, then, th- since then, of course, they've become the most numerous domesticated creature on Earth. Um, and so it must have pr- taken off pretty quickly. Yeah, sadly for the chicken, it seems like within a few centuries of living in Europe, uh, chicken was on the menu and the birds were no longer revered and given this sort of special treatment. Yeah, and so, so much the worse for them and uh, for the environment. Lastly, in recent months, doctors around the world have been reporting many mysterious cases of children suddenly developing liver failure. Michael, you've been looking into this. What can you tell us about it? Uh, So what's been happening in a few children is their livers are becoming inflamed and damaged to the extent that this organ can't do its usual job of removing waste products from the blood. The medical term for this is acute hepatitis, and one of the main symptoms of it is a yellowing of the skin or the whites of the eyes, what we call jaundice. So you say a few children, how many have been affected? As of the end of May, the World Health Organization has reports of around 650 cases. Most of the cases are in Europe, the US and Canada, but there are also reports from further afield, Japan, Korea, Indonesia, Argentina, and so on. So the the good news is that most of these children have recovered, but so far 38 have needed transplants and nine have died. That's awful. And and with the transplants, you know, this means that children will be on immunosuppressant drugs the rest of their lives. So it's really quite major for them, isn't it? Do we have any idea what's causing it and and what can be done to prevent more cases? I'm afraid the short answer is no. Uh, So we know that sudden liver failure can be caused by a number of viruses and by various toxins. Uh, The drug paracetamol, by the way, is a really common cause of liver failure, which is why it's so important not to take so much. But these sort of usual causes have been ruled out in these children. So it's it's a bit of a mystery. So the UK health authorities have been saying, haven't they, that the leading suspect is a, a kind of cold virus known as the adenovirus. That's right. And that's because in the UK, when they've been testing these children, they've they found adenoviruses in 70% of the, the children with hepatitis. But it doesn't explain everything because adenoviruses usually only cause liver failure in children whose immune systems aren't working properly. And they also damage the liver by infecting liver cells directly. Yet when they've looked at liver samples from these children, they're not finding these adenoviruses actually in liver cells. So this doesn't sort of explain everything. It leaves a lot of unanswered questions. And what about coronavirus? We've had that, of course, um, all the time. So is there some COVID link? Well, it, it's possible. And we, in fact, we know that SARS-CoV-2 can infect livers directly on rare occasion. But that's that's ruled out in these children too. So that leaves the possibility that there's something more subtle going on. Perhaps COVID is disrupting their immune system in some way that leads to, to liver damage later on. So for instance, one idea that's been proposed is that COVID can oversensitize the immune system. And then when you do get an adenovirus infection, the immune system overreacts and it's that overreaction that is damaging the liver. Mm, it's interesting, isn't it? Because um, it, it's hard to test children to know if they've had COVID at some point, uh, rather than if they have COVID now. So I, I guess in theory, it could be that these children have had COVID, and then the adenovirus or some other virus, and, and that's what's triggered this hepatitis. 
Yeah, that's so. Uh, this idea that's the combination of the two is is one of the many ideas that's been investigated, and uh, hopefully we're going to find out more soon because it, it really matters in terms of treating these cases. So, for instance, if this is some kind of immune overreaction, what you want to do is treat it by damping down this immune response. But if it's a viral infection, then the last thing you want to do is suppress the immune system. So it's really important to find out as, as quickly as we can. Thanks, Michael. I, I hope we find out more soon. That's it for this week. Thanks to our guests on the pod, Michael LePage and Adam Vaughan, and our AI man, Arthur Holland Michelle. And thanks to you for listening. One more thing to say is we're recording a special episode of the show live at the Blue Dot Festival at Jodrell Bank in Cheshire. And on the panel, we've got New Scientist's own in-house astronomer, Abby Beale. We've got Emmy-nominated composer, Hannah Peel. We've got geologist, Chris Jackson. And we've got physicist and diversity champion, Jess Wade. So go to discovertheblue.com to find out more. Do remember to rate our show and subscribe and tell all your friends and family to listen, every single one of them. I'm Penny Sarchet. And I'm Rowan Hooper. Bye for now and take care. See you next week. Bye. 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 This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.